0: As the children go, you can grab your Bible and turn once again to First Thessalonians. We're on the home stretch of our series in First Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5, the last chapter. One comment before I read it. It's on page 958. I I normally try to, when I write a sermon, I try to have it match the tone. Of the text, whatever whatever passage I'm preaching on, I, I don't I don't know I'm not always successful. I don't always pull it off, but I try to read the passage and get a sense for the tone uh, that it was written in, and then I try to write a sermon that conveys that tone. Uh, This morning, I say that because this morning we, we, we hit a heavy a heavy topic. The tone is heavy. I think you'll feel it when I read it. It's heavy, but it ends hopeful. So if you're wondering why the sermon feels heavy, That's what I'm going for. Uh, It's a heavy topic, uh, but hang in there, because it ends hopeful. All right, let's read it. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Let's ask for his help in understanding and applying it. Holy Father, thank you for these words that you have spoken, that you by your Spirit inspired Paul to speak, to write down, to instruct the church in Thessalonica and to instruct us. And so I pray that you'd help us to make sense of these words. They've been read for So long, for so many centuries, by so many different people in so many different places. And they're relevant to all of us, whether we know it or not. Every human is impacted by these words. So help us to understand them and believe them and live accordingly. Amen. All right, well, the Bible is a book consisting of two major parts. You know this the Hebrew Bible. which we call the Old Testament, but it wasn't called that at the time it was written, lays the foundation. It tells the first part of the story and it prophetically anticipates the second part of the story. Now there are Christians who think that it's really only the second part, only the New Testament that's relevant to us because that's the part where God sends his son to die for the sins of his people. That's the part where God broadens the scope of his people to include the Gentiles, which is what most of us are. But if we simply leap over, move on from the Old Testament, and act as if the only relevant parts of the Bible begin with the Gospel of Matthew, we will miss major plot points of the story that God's telling. It would be like reading a mystery novel and starting two-thirds of the way in. You'd be lost. You'd miss all the clues that the author had planted during the first part of the book. The authors of the New Testament were intimately familiar with the Old, the Hebrew Bible. And they regularly, when you're reading the New Testament, they're regularly citing the Old Testament and assuming that you and I get the references. They're they're, They're purposefully placing the story that they're telling within the larger framework of the story that God's telling in the Bible. That's what Paul's doing in 1 Thessalonians 5. And he's assuming that you know what he's up to. He's assuming that we get the reference. When Paul refers to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Paul didn't invent that phrase. The day of the Lord. That's an internal reference He's citing the Old Testament. He is referring to an event that the Bible has been referring to for a long time. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was the day when God himself would come, would enter into creation, and would come in judgment. He would come and judge. And that judgment on the day of the Lord will result either in condemnation or salvation. But that day is coming. The first clue to what the day of the Lord is all about comes way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and chapter 3. That's when things start to go sideways in this story, right away at the start. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, a lot of scholars see that as, as kind of a foretaste of the day of the Lord. Adam and Eve have just broken God's law for the first time and then God appears in their midst ready to judge. Imagine, Imagine what they felt in that moment. This is the first time anyone has ever felt guilt. It's a new feeling for them. It's the first time they've ever felt shame. It's the first time they've ever wanted to get away from God instead of run towards Him. It was a day upon which they would be called to account for their actions. Now, that's a little, it's a little speculative because the phrase itself, the day of the Lord, doesn't appear in that passage. But it does appear over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. So, for example, and I'll try to do this quickly and not comprehensively, but, but I want for us to feel the weight of, of, of all of these texts that refer to this day. And so in Isaiah chapter 13, it says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. According to the prophet Isaiah, the day of the Lord is clearly and obviously a scary day, a day of judgment. The prophet prophet Jeremiah says the same thing. He writes in chapter 46, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall depart devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood for the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates that was Jeremiah Ezekiel says the same thing thus says the Lord God Wail, alas for the day the day is near the day of the Lord is near it will be a day of clouds a time of doom for the nations That was Ezekiel. Zephaniah says the same thing. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Again, in the prophet Joel, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. From the prophet Amos, the same. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Okay, you get the idea. Those are all prophetic references to the day of the Lord, and they're bleak, it's heavy they all indicate that that day is most assuredly coming. There's no question, there's no wondering if maybe it's going to come. It is coming for sure. And it will be a day of judgment and destruction and darkness. And it will be visited upon all those who have rebelled against the law of the Lord. Now the particularly acute problem that we should feel when we hear that phrase that it's going to be visited upon all of those who have rebelled against the law of the Lord is that all humans, all of us, without exception, have rebelled against the law of the Lord. That includes, of course, Babylon and Assyria, but also the people of Israel and also us too. And that is bleak. And this this scary day of the Lord, where God is going to judge those who have broken His law, is coming. We should feel the weight of that. The authors of Scripture are writing in such a way that we will feel the accumulative weight of that as we hear about and anticipate and tremble about this coming day of the Lord. It reminds me, when I think about what's going on here, it reminds me of um, that the, the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov. You remember his famous advice about writing? He said, If in the first act you've hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following act, it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. That was his advice about how to write a good play and keep people interested. Well, this day of the Lord is like a pistol hung on the wall of the Old Testament. And it's going to go off, right? We see it. We feel it. We, 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 we feel nervous about it. We're looking at it. The day of the Lord. It's going to go off. It's going to happen. It's just a question of When? And it's this biblical theme that runs right through the Old Testament prophets that Paul takes up in 1 Thessalonians 5. And this is the dilemma that the Old Testament has, has set up. The, the, the great dilemma of the Old Testament is that God is holy and just, right? He's righteous and perfect, and he creates humans in his image. He creates us very good and then he gives us his law to guide us. And as a means of grace, it's good. His law is good. But we break his law. And as such, every one of us deserves judgment. Deserves punishment. Which is most assuredly what's coming on the day of the Lord. That's the dilemma. How are we, we going to survive this day? We know we're not going to survive it on our own because we've transgressed the law. The question is, will there be anyone who can come along and save us from this predicament? Right. That's the question the Bible asks over and over again. Is there one who will save us? Is there there some sort of David that's going to come along in the line of David and, and defeat the Goliath on our behalf? Is there some sort of Moses who's going to come along and lead God's people out of slavery and into the promised land? Is there some sort of Joseph who's going to to come along and by his own faithfulness and by his own wisdom, going to preserve and protect the people of God? We We need a hero. We need a leader. And the way the Old Testament is written is that the people are constantly looking for, recognizing their predicament and looking for this hero, this leader. Is a figure in the Old Testament referred to, not that often, but referred to as the Messiah. He's coming. He will make it right. He will solve the dilemma. He'll do all these things that we need done for us, that we cannot do for ourselves. And so the people of God wait and watch for the Messiah to come. And eventually, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. And make no mistake, after the Messiah comes and redeems the people of God, the day of the Lord is still coming. And according to our passage in First Thessalonians 5, there will be two and only two groups of people on that day. Right? We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. There's all kinds of different cultures and different people in the world. And yet, on that day, there's just going to be two groups of people, just two. Paul conveys it through three contrasts. He talks about light and darkness, people who live in the light and people who choose darkness. He talks about being drunk or sober, people who choose to numb their senses as opposed to those who stay sharp and sober. And he talks about being prepared and unprepared. Right? Light, light and dark, that's a common contrast in the Bible. That theme too runs right through the Bible. Here, Paul employs it to distinguish between actions that are shameful and done under the cover of darkness and actions which are done in the light and out in the open because the person has nothing to hide. And Paul says that Christians ought to act in such a way that we are children of the light, children of the day, behaving in a way that we are not ashamed of our actions, speaking in a way that we would not be worried to have anyone else hear the words that are coming out of our mouth. It reminds me of a true story I heard once about a man. He's a, he was a medical doctor and he was an alcoholic, but he came to faith in Christ. And when he came to faith in Christ, by God's grace, he was able to stop drinking. He was asked one day, what if, what if you were alone in your office one night, let's say you worked late." And uh, you remembered that back in your drinking days you had hidden a bottle of the finest scotch behind some of your books. And you just remembered it on this night. You're all alone. No one's ever going to know. Would you drink it? The, que- the person who asked the question was just trying to figure out how deep the transformation went when this guy came to faith in Christ. Was it so deep? Was he such a new creation, so transformed that, that, that he, it would prevent, the transformation would prevent him from doing wrong? Even if he was all alone, even if no one would ever know, even if it's something he used to love to do, would he, would he do it? And here's, what, here's how he answered. He said, I reject the question because it's a scenario that could never, ever happen. I will never be alone again. Because wherever I go, God is with me, and I feel him. And if I broke my vow of sobriety, and if I drank again in the privacy of my office, I wouldn't be alone, and God would know. And I would know. And that is why I would never, ever do that. That's living in the light. Like, to me, when I think about that, that's the definition of living in the light, acting in such a way that we will never be ashamed of our actions, and therefore having nothing to hide. I don't care who looks at my life. I don't care who audits uh, my moments, my words, my actions. Have a look. That's what living in the light is all about, and the opposite of which is being a child of darkness and living in a way that lacks moral integrity. I'll give you an example of that. I heard a I heard a story on the radio about um, hit-and-run accidents where a car hits a pedestrian and then takes off. And they were talking in the story about how difficult it is, how hard it is to find and convict drivers who do this. Because typically what they'll do, they'll hit the pedestrian, and then they'll take off right away because they panic, and they don't want to get in trouble. And then they try to convince themselves that it wasn't that bad, And then they go home and park the car in the garage, clean it up if it needs cleaning, and don't take it out again for a while. Just sit it in the garage. They said, this is the pattern. And then eventually, they'll wait for a while, and then eventually, um, they'll start driving the car again. And what I thought, after I heard that story, I was wondering, what must it feel like for those drivers once they start driving that car again? Wouldn't they be constantly wondering, am I going to get caught? Am I going to get found out? Am I going to get pulled over today and held to account for my actions? Wouldn't they be constantly worried about that? That must be a terrible feeling. Knowing that you've broken the law. Knowing that you've done something wrong. Knowing that you are guilty and subject to retribution if caught and just hoping that you don't get caught. That's a horrible way to live. Doesn't that sound awful? That's what Paul's getting at when he talks about people who live in darkness. Those are people who break God's law, who, who, who know that they're subject to retribution and who are wondering if they're going to get caught or if they're going to get away with it. And so they are willfully choosing to live in darkness rather than the light. That's the difference between being a child of the light and a child of the night. And, and the, the drunk, sober contrast basically contains the same idea, right? Paul is saying that there's a lot at stake here, so be sober, be focused. Take this seriously. This is not a joke. That's the thing about drunk people is that they, they, they have dulled their sense of responsibility. right? Nothing is taken seriously. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. This is serious. Be sober. Give it your full attention. Because the day of the Lord is coming. And if you're drunkenly living in the darkness instead of soberly living in the light, you are not going to be prepared when that day comes. And that's the final contrast. There will be people who are prepared on that day, and there will be people who are not. The two metaphors for being prepared are, are, or unprepared are a thief in the night and a woman in labor. Right? And the point about thieves in the night is that they don't make appointments. They don't announce ahead of time that they're coming. You don't go to bed at night saying, well, tonight's the night when the thieves are going to come. You you know it's a theoretical possibility, but most people don't ever go to bed thinking, well, tonight I'll be robbed. And as a result, homeowners are often caught off guard by robbers. In fact, that's the whole point of robbers. They're trying to catch you off guard and unprepared. And so a wise homeowner will be, not paranoid, but will be prepared in case tonight is a night when a thief will come. And it's the same with birth and labor. A birth never catches someone totally off guard, right? Like, if you're pregnant, then you know at some point you're going to go into labor, but you don't know exactly when. The baby could come early, the baby could come late, you don't know. You just have this kind of general window, but you don't know for sure when. And so you're prepared, just in case, because you don't know, right? Do you remember that feeling? If you have kids of your own, you, you have a plan, you have a bag packed, you have a doctor, a midwife selected, you are prepared because you don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen anytime, and you want to be prepared because it's a big deal, it's serious. Well, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, and by extension, telling us, to be prepared for the day of the Lord. Are you? Let's ask ourselves, are we? What, if, what would it mean? What would it mean to be prepared for the day of the Lord? Well, what does Paul say here? He, he tells us, he answers that by giving us a familiar triad. He says that if you want to be prepared for the day of the Lord, you need to live a life marked by faith, love, and hope. Notice, he's not saying you need to be perfect. You, you just need to live a life that's marked by, that's moving in the direction of faith, love, and hope. Faith. That's that's that deep, abiding, childlike trust in God, right? The way a a child feels about a good dad. That sense of, okay, dad, I don't always know what you're talking about, but I trust you. I know you love me. I believe that you'll protect me. I know you'll take care of me. You provide for me. And so I trust you. And I will obey your instructions even when they seem counterintuitive. Because I trust you. That's faith. If you want an image to link this idea in your mind of what, what faith is like, picture a child when they get hurt. Right? You, you, a kid that gets hurt, where do they immediately what do they immediately want? They want a parent. right? Like that's, You don't have to teach a kid to call for mom when they get hurt. They know to do that. They instinctively do that. They know to do that because the parent is the one who knows them and who loves them. And can take care of them so they trust them. That's faith. That should be our posture towards God. And love. We're, supposed to, we're told we're supposed to wear faith and love like a breastplate. So we put it on and it's always with us wherever we go. Love is our highest calling, right? Love. We're not supposed to go anywhere without it. We are called, Jesus said. It's the big one. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest Commandment, and the second is like unto it, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means everything we do and say should be marked by love, should be motivated by love, should express love. That's what it means to live in the light. It means living a life consistently marked by love for God and love for others. And finally, hope. He says, wear hope like a helmet on your head. Walk around with your hope on your head, protecting your head, never forget that despite the fact that hard and tragic things happen in this broken world, our situation is fundamentally hopeful because hard and tragic things don't get the last word. Hopeful because the Son of God who secured our salvation is coming back. And like small children who've been Injured by our experiences in this broken world, we look to Jesus, right? When we panic, when we're hurting, when we need help, we look to Jesus who knows us and who loves us and who's able to take care of us. And by keeping our hope fixed on Jesus, we are prepared for the day of the Lord. All right, well, all along we've been saying, because the Bible's been saying, that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. When the prophets spoke about the judgment, they employed some terrifying images of darkness and destruction and wrath and vengeance, right? You heard all those words. If you only read those passages, you would think that no one would be looking forward to this day. It's going to be a horrible day. That's the tone of all those passages. So why do we look forward to this day with hope when it's going to be this awful day of judgment? Well, it's verses 9 and 10 that answer that. It says, for God has not destined us for, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment for those who haven't already had their sins judged on the cross, and had their sins atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus For those of us who are in Christ, it's a day of salvation. It's a day where we finally see our Savior face to face. It's a day where we experience fellowship with the full family of God. It's a day when the final remnants of our sinful nature that we're so sick of, that we want to be done with, are finally wiped away and we transition to eternal life in the presence of God. You remember, okay, all those scary passages from those prophets about the day of the Lord. I want to go back to the one more in, in the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2 starts like this, familiar ground. It says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, we've heard that before. But listen to where it goes from there. It continues with the same dark imagery. I won't read it all. And then, it, 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 here's a little bit. It says, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The, st- the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Okay. And now, right here, we're brought to the very edge of despair, right? Joel brings us there to this day, and it's, it's horrible. We're asking ourselves, who in the world is ever going to be able to endure the Lord's judgment? And here's what Joel writes. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and He relents over disaster. Return to the Lord. Maybe that's the one thing you needed to hear this morning. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Return to the Lord. He is gracious and merciful. Right in the middle of The judgment. It's a judgment passage. It's talking about judgment on the day of the Lord. Right in the middle of that comes grace. And by the end of the chapter, we read this. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for in mount zion and in jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the lord calls so we're left with hope we we land on hope even though the day of the lord is a scary day it's an overwhelming day and that's conveyed in all kinds of word pictures we're still left with hope the prophet Joel doesn't soften the vision of the day of the Lord. He says it's going to be terrible and scary. But he also indicates that not everyone will be obliterated by the justice of the Lord. Some will be spared. Who will be spared? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, without exception, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the implication there is that everyone who refuses to call on the name of the Lord shall be damned. So for those who are living soberly in the light and have called on the name of the Lord, they are prepared. They are the ones who are prepared for the day of the Lord. Those are the ones who are looking forward to and longing for the day of the Lord. And for those who choose darkness, they will be unprepared. And it will be a day of destruction. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the ways in which your, your word coheres. Thank you for uh, the consistent story that you've been telling uh, throughout history and through the Bible. That builds our faith. That's encouraging to see. I thank you that you are faithful to keep every single word, every single promise that you've made. What feels like a slowness to fulfill these promises on our end. It's you simply keeping your timetable the way that you sovereignly have designed. We receive that. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly, and we do look forward to that day where faith shall be sight. We pray these things in your name. Amen.